Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, April 16th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Pulitzer Prizes were announced today. The Pulitzers, some say Pulitzers. Why, I do not know. It's a Pullman car and a pulley system and someone is pulchritudinous. So why say Pulitzers? I don't know, because people say Pulitzers. This was a momentous year for the Pulitzers. Well, you know, the Times won, the Washington Post won. They always win. It's not that they don't deserve it. They don't not deserve it. Fine news organizations. Valuable. Kendrick Lamar won in the music category over such East Coast haters as Michael Gilbertson, who laid down this diss track that he calls Quartet. That's what usually wins a Pulitzer in music, but this year it was Kendrick Lamar. And so that means, in a way, though uncredited, Fox News can count this as their first Pulitzer. Why? Because right there, in the middle of the Kendrick Lamar song, DNA, who shows up? Well, let me play the part of the song, and you see if you can make out who's talking. This is why I say that hip-hop has done more damage to young African-Americans than racism in recent years. Yeah, that's Geraldo. Geraldo Rivera's in that Kendrick Lamar song. The song was on the album... The album won the Pulitzer. Therefore, it's maybe not too crazy to say Geraldo Rivera has won his Pulitzer. Finally. But you want to know what's really crazy? The other finalist who didn't win besides quartet was this thing called The Crossing, a five-movement cantata for chamber choir, electric guitar, and percussion that raises oblique questions about the cross-currents of power through excerpts from sources as diverse as Supreme Court rulings and ventriloquism textbooks. Why don't you tell us? We, 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 we will give you time for rebuttal. The thing about quoting a ventriloquist in a song is it loses some of the appeal and the mystery. I mean, who can't do that? Like, if the guy's lips were moving when he said that, I could see why he's only a finalist and not a winner. So... Let me quote Kendrick Lamar and say, damn. So like I said, the halls of the Post, the New York Times, festooned with Pulitzers, bedecked with Pulitzers. You could pronounce a dozen of those news organizations Pulitzers, and they'd still have enough Pulitzers to beat everyone else. But you know who else won a Pulitzer? And this was heartwarming. Friend of the gist, John Archibald. He's been on a few times. He's just this voice for sense and civic virtue down there in Alabama. He's doing what a columnist should be doing. Here he was talking to me about Roy Moore, the national story, but reminding us all about the local backdrop, the love gov, Governor Robert Bentley, which was a story he had been following and chronicling to the benefit of his readers. This is a governor who came into office in 2014 with a 72% approval rating. And within a course of 18 months, he was reduced to the most unpopular man in the state because he had had a a, a consensual affair 
with a younger staff member, younger being in her 40s and being misleading about it and using some state resources to cover it up. I mean, he was ostracized for this. And yet when we've come to a place and this time where a guy who was not that popular to begin with, people are apologizing for him, even though he is credibly accused of doing just incredibly freaky things with 14-year-old girls. So, I mean, it's hard to kind of reconcile that, but that seems to be where we are. So Alabama, they win a national championship, they reject Roy Moore, and you get a Pulitzer for Archibald, Rammer Jammer Yellowhammer. On the show today, I spiel a defense of uh, James Comey, three aspects of James Comey that I like, like, and accept, have learned to live with. But first, they've got the power And they're giving it to us. It is a book called New Power. It is a revolution. And that is two Prince backup groups in one. They are, in fact, Jeremy Hymans and Henry Timms. New Power. Suck it, old power. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a little too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we quell. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. Henry Timms and Jeremy Hymans are authors and they're in the world of philanthropy and they know about business and they've worked in nonprofits. But you know what they are? I just tipped it when I said nonprofits. They are, in fact, profits. And their book is called New Power, How Power Works in Our Hyperconnected World and How to Make It Work for You. Uh, Maybe you've seen Jeremy's TED Talk, which set the world on fire a little while ago. And they each have uh, they each have impressive credentials on their own, like being the CEO of Purpose in Jeremy's case and being the executive director of the 92nd Street Y in Henry's case. Hello, gentlemen. Welcome. Hello. Hello. I want to I want to talk all about your book and I'm, I'm going to give you some pushback just so you know. But first, let's talk about as we sit here, Zuckerberg just testified and so many of the themes of your book were present as we saw the old power of Congress and the Senate butting up against the new power of Zuckerberg and his testimony and his company of Facebook. You embrace, you explain, but you also embrace new power. I was not heartened by that juxtaposition in what I saw these last two days. What were your reactions? What did uh, we saw? How does it illustrate some of the themes of your book? And does any of it worry you? Jeremy, you could go first. Look, the Facebook situation absolutely worries us. Here's how we define new power in the book. We define it as this ability to harness the energy of a connected crowd, which we see as this kind of crucial skill of the 21st mm-hmm. century. And the reality is that the best actors in the world and the worst actors in the world are capable of using this new 
power. Yeah. And so an analogy is the ability to harness the power of the atom. It's powerful and right. it's potentially destructive. Precisely. And yeah. I think what we what we see now with uh, outfits like Facebook is effectively the co-optation of new power. Mark Zuckerberg clearly understands how to build a, a platform in which we are all busy participating. We're full of participatory energy, but that energy is being harvested for Facebook's benefit and it's being extracted. And so that's one of the big themes of the book is that this new power can be used for good, it can be used for ill. And for us, the big question is what you do about it. Yes. And it also seems to me that Zuckerberg looks at connectivity as purely a virtue, but that's not true. Downsides include connectivity between white supremacists, connectivity between terrorists, just the connectivity of people who really have terrible ideas convincing themselves that Pizzagate is right. And so those are maybe extreme examples, but real life, less extreme examples probably gave rise to Brexit and Trump. But Henry, what were your takeaways? You know, I think that's right. One of the the things we researched in the book is the story of a, a Scottish schoolgirl called Aksa Mahmood, who grew up in a nice family, went to good schools, loved Harry Potter. She was described as someone who couldn't make it into Glasgow on a bus to find her way into Glasgow on a bus. But in the evening, she was radicalized online. And one day, she simply disappeared. Uh, three days later, the phone rang. She's on the border heading into Syria and had joined ISIS. And then she becomes one of the most effective ISIS recruiters. She builds this girl-to-girl network. And what she's doing is she's creating these actionable ideas. She's spreading memes. She's engaging on Tumblr. She's using emojis. She has yeah. this whole suite of skills yeah. that can mobilize new power to build this amazing network around medieval theocracy. At the same time, she's doing that. Uh, the U.S. government at the same time is trying to combat that idea. Uh, and they're literally flying bombers over Syria and Iraq, dropping leaflets out of the back of the plane to try and persuade people not to join ISIS. And uh, in a way, that's the battle of our time, right? Which is, are you entering these big battles armed with tools that allow you to spread your ideas around the world? Or do you still have this kind of top-down 20th century mindset? So the old power skills are traditional salesmanship. The new power skill is universally accessible storytelling. Old, proven credentials. New, a compelling personal or group narrative. So this sounds great, except when you think about it in the form of the Scottish schoolgirl, and there are no gatekeepers, and she's able to mobilize a terrorist network. And this is exactly why we wrote this book. Because if we look at the last couple of years, if you look at Trump, you look at Brexit, the story, think of Trump, right? Here's a guy who built this vast decentralized social media army. He gave them enormous agency to develop messages. Part of the chaos of Trump also released this creativity of these young men, mostly on Reddit and 4chan. We wanted to document and map out what these new skills are. How do you build a movement? How do you build an enduring following? How do you spread an idea? How do you raise money for something, something worthwhile? Let's get these hands, for example, in the hands of a climate scientist rather than a climate denier. Because a climate scientist might have truth on her side. Mm -hmm. But if that climate scientist is armed only with a white paper, they're not going to win the debate. The doctor needs to be armed with these tools in the fight against the anti-vaxxer. We don't say old power is bad, nor that old power is over. And, and, and I'll give you an example. I had my appendix out 
yeah. th- three weeks ago. Yeah, you I didn't go, did, you didn't go to someone who listens I to not want talk to, radio. Right, I you did went not to the crowdsource best it. Doctor. I did yeah. not get makers in Williamsburg mm-hmm. to get their tools together and take out my appendix. This was not a moment. Really, for you new don't power. have a wooden, a tin wooden <laughs> appendix, <laughs> uh, an artisanal, yeah. an artisanal uh, uh, appendix. <laughs> it's, it's it's fully organic. Um, That's so, right, right. They replaced it with radicchio. Radicchio. It's always kale. Always kale. So our argument isn't that there isn't a place for expertise, but our argument is that we need old power expertise and we need it allied with new power skills. So one of the things the book talks about is we need to master this skill of how you blend power together. So we all understand old power, right? We've learned it for hundreds of years. We've been under its heel for centuries. So how do you develop new power alongside your old power skills? And then how can you pull both of those levers when you need to? And, And I think one of the examples in the book, you look at the NRA, just as an example. The NRA keeps on winning largely because they can blend power very well. They have this amazing old power brand, right? But what they also have is this amazing new power ecosystem around their membership of people who are highly intensive about their work and their missions. So when these crucial battles come up, it's the NRAs following who are making all the phone calls to politicians, not those on the side of gun control. And that's what's so exciting about, I think, the moment that we're in now with the Parkland kids, because you finally got a generation of kids who intuitively understand this ability to harness a connected crowd. They've, they've got great skill in that. And that's really important because what the gun control side has lacked for 30 years is intensity. So here's an interesting question with Facebook. It's kind of what next, right? Yeah. So we're all in this kind of delete Facebook mindset right now. But actually, the real conversation is about structural change. What would a different kind of Facebook look like? Can you imagine a Facebook where we could all alter the settings ourselves so we, we understand what we're feeding in and what we're feeding out? Can you imagine a Facebook with a public interest algorithm, kind of the idea of a public interest test from broadcasting? How would you apply that to an algorithm so we create something, given the influence it has, which benefits us all much more broadly? The, these are the questions which we think come next. Well, in terms of Facebook, I am beginning to think that there are not enough new power solutions to the excesses of new power. I think you need old power solutions, like an actual government regulator to rein in new power. Yeah, so I think there's a strong case for for regulating Facebook. But regulating it in a cool, crowdsourced, storytelling way or regulating it in like an old, uncool government bureaucrat says you've gone too far, here's a fine way. We're going to need both old and new power to do this. So here's the new power element. The users of Facebook need to start acting like citizens rather than just consumers. Like we need a political consciousness related to Facebook because Facebook's become the public square. We should be organizing. But there are things that we think government can do. And an example of that is we should be able to treat Facebook the way we treat our mobile phones. We're able to switch, you know, if you want to switch from Verizon to AT&T, the switching happens seamlessly because you can just port your number across, right? You can actually replicate that experience with the social networks. And imagine if you could just take all your friends and all your data and seamlessly import it into another platform. Imagine how much easier it would be for the users of Facebook to look for a platform that was less extractive and that gave us more of a voice. I'd be in favor of that. But I do have to say that if the solution to any of these problems is that citizens or users become citizens or people who are looking for, you know, 15 minutes of escape from the drudgery of their jobs or just to connect to their high school friends have to behave like the most high-minded of citizens, we're doomed. And if that were applied to the Corvair, instead of the government coming in and saying this car is unsafe at any speed, the Corvair would still be on the road killing people. If that were applied to the Chicago stockyard, 
cards. Well, all we need is the citizenry to be as fully involved as you could hope. You know, we'd still be eating tainted meat. Well, we also need citizens to pressure governments to really regulate Facebook and do that intelligently. That's how a lot of the changes you just described but regulate them by a, a dusty old bureau that's like the FCC used to regulate. When the environment was regulated by those old, if you have a brownfield here, you are fined rules, the environment improved. You know, smog in LA dissipated and the Clean Water Act led to clean water. I know that that's not a cool cutting edge technology and there's no app for the rivers of America, but why is it that old regulation can only work with an old industry and not a new industry? Why are we automatically defaulting to some sort of cool newfangled regulation just because Uber ends in a dot-com? I, I don't think we are. I, I don't think that's our recommendation. And I also wonder what your alternative vision is. If you think we're now in a world where the future is really this battle for mobilization, right? Who is going to engage people in their ideas? What sets people out? Those organizations who decide not to engage people in their ideas and just say, we're just going to do this in our own terms, I- I'm not sure they're going to have either re- the relevance or the authority they'll need for the future. So well, I'm just saying we're a constitutional democracy. So but, that's but let's look at the environment just as an issue, yeah. right? So it's a good example of that. There are all sorts of interesting experiments now where people are environmental agencies and such like are engaging people to report on things that they're seeing in their world which aren't right you can actually see how people citizens can play a very meaningful role right in reporting on things that aren't right on keeping an eye on things on actually policing the state in interesting ways there's a story uh, in the book around a school in in brazil which was actually essentially uh, was pushed very hard in the right direction because citizens mobilized in interesting ways to take account of the things that should matter in life Yeah, so this is a story of a young girl, an 11-year-old girl called Bia. Her school was about to be demolished to make way for an Olympic parking lot. And what she did, she organized this amazing campaign where she asked the citizens of Rio to become citizen guardians of the school and basically essentially to give them their mobile phone numbers. And as soon as the demolition equipment arrived, to come to the school and form a human barrier to protect the school. And thousands and thousands of the citizens of Rio did this. It created this moment that became a story about this unaccountable development. And they won. Within 72 hours, the governor of Rio decided to save the school and committed to a process in which these schools and their closing became more consultative. So look, there's a lot that we need to keep about the old power world. We completely agree with you that there is a base of regulatory rigor that is needed. Our primary argument is that if we want the good guys to win, if we want government to endure, we have to make government more participatory. I mean, you think about the tax return, right? Think about how deeply unengaging that experience is. So whenever we hear from government, it's in the form of summons. It's in the form of like, well, you know, we're here to kind of basically admonish you. Imagine a tax return that was actually more engaging, that actually said, here's an amazing way that your tax dollars were used. Here's the story of someone who's done that, right? And yeah, it sounds yeah. silly. Or, or you... here is your tax allotment. Here is how much you have to pay. Here's what that buys. And then you can even target it. Like, right. you're into the military. Exactly. You just bought a drone. It was your drone who killed a terrorist. Right. Or you're, you're like more left wing. You just bought a dam and you brought power to the Appalachian region. Right. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, what, what's, I mean, the drone thing is clearly disturbing. But what, but what is exciting about that is it replicates the things that hold our attention in the 21st century. Yeah. This isn't about giving in to new fads. It's about, it's about making the things we most cherish institutions that we need. And we agree with you. You know, we're, we're, on, we're obviously progressives. We're on the side of government. But we want those institutions to be more responsive to a new world. I liked your story of the girl in Rio. 
It excited the parts of my brain that made me relate to human beings. It had an arc. It was a story. It had all the hallmarks of new power. But I also have to reject it. Because think about Rio. Rio is not doing well. If this one-time event were scalable again and again and again, you wouldn't have any of these horrible stories of Rio. So it's an anecdote. Well, you're making an argument against all activism, right? These, These things are huge struggles. Well, to me, activism can be the union movement, which wasn't about one guy at a lathe. I mean... True, the triangle shirtwaist uh, fire took place, and they and they uh, you know protested around it. But it was a huge movement, and it was maybe based on some boring principles like uh, the hours of work per week. But it wasn't based on one story or one example of a girl that wasn't replicated time and time again. But all movements are about moments, and nothing. You know, look at Rosa Parks, and that's that's never been more important because these punctuated moments can catalyze incredible action. And what about gatekeepers? I I pine for the days of not all gatekeepers. They kept some people out, but I think we need more gatekeepers. Which kind? The kind that can say that Pizzagate was nonsense and you shouldn't believe in it. The kind that say this is uh, an important story that you should look at. Even in the power structure of political parties to say, to, you know, define the Overton windows with a little bit of logic. It's pretty easy to romanticize the, the good old days when, right? And actually, one of the dangers of the rise of new power is it's going to lead people to suddenly want desperately want more control, right? You'll see this chaos, you'll see things behaving in new ways. These people are starting movements, all these things keep happening, I don't know what's going on. And our default will be this kind of retraction to more control. And on a daily basis, that's dangerous. But on a social basis, it's even more dangerous that you end up in this place of saying, amongst all this chaos, give me more control. And around the world, actually, what you're seeing is a lot of politicians making that trade, which is to say, look, we'll give you this promise of the future, we'll allow you to participate on a daily basis more, and we'll take care of the big stuff. And, and, And that model, whether it's in China or it's in Russia or it's closer to home, that model is a, is, a, is a very dangerous one. So I wouldn't pine too much for the good old days of the gatekeepers. The way I look at it is we've, we've overcorrected and it's a pendulum. I'm wondering what are the mechanisms to use new power to actually define who is an expert, who isn't an expert, and to give the experts more voices than the non-experts. Well, I think the good news is that some of these new power models are quite good at credentialing. An Airbnb has a very sophisticated way of helping you know who is a trustworthy host and who isn't. And they've figured out a way to do that at scale that's pretty impressive. So some of it, I think we can actually use some of these new power techniques to vet ordinary people as experts rather than just the ones who have the degrees from Harvard. New power, how power works in our hyper-connected world and how to make it work for you by Jeremy Hymans and Henry Timms. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank Thank you. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And now the spiel. I rise in defense 
of Mr. Comey. James Comey does seem like a ramrod straight, even stiff G-man who is clearly influenced by his religion in a way that, if you squint, might remind you a little bit of the Michael Shannon character in Boardwalk Empire, which is to also say the Michael Shannon character in Shape of Water. So I see the need for Comey to humanize himself, to attempt to come across as a person rather than a dutiful suit. In his interview with George Stephanopoulos on 2020, he was shown a picture of himself as a dorkful youth, and he responded with a comment about rocking the bangs. Okay, it's humanizing. He also included in his book and in excerpts details of his interactions with President Trump that included notes about the size of Trump's hands. They weren't they weren't inflammatory notes. They weren't insulting. Just said the hands were slightly smaller. Comey's a very large man. He also commented on the citrusness of the president's complexion. Shouldn't be shocking. We all have a TV. Guy's kind of orange. Some have called these details novelistic. Others have said they were excessive and damaging to Comey's cause. Among people making that argument were Al Cardenas and Carol Leon meet the press. I thought he got petty at times, yeah. which which devalued the message he's trying to bring. But we'll see what happens in the days ahead in his interviews with you all. Yeah, the pettiness has yeah. uh, been yeah, a lot of people pointing that out. Yeah, between you know, it was, he takes these kind of shots at Trump about his hands or his height or that he's orange, and and that kind of overshadows his larger message. But to me, those are exactly the sorts of things that you'd want to hear from Comey if you were talking to him over a friendly drink. The details that don't go to the heart of criminal charges, but do flesh out the picture of our fleshpot-loving wannabe despot. Some, like CBS's Paula Reed here on Face the Nation, were quite critical of Comey, including these details. I mean, this is very personal. It seems at times very petty. And the problem with that is that it bolsters the president's claim that there is a disdain for the president among top federal law enforcement officials in this country. And it's that disdain or that contempt that drives these investigations into Cohen or the Russia probe and not the facts. The other important thing is, is that these kind of petty jabs, they distract from other really important tidbits in that book. For example, the lack of focus on the Trump administration's part on preventing foreign interference in our elections. First of all, if you are critical of Trump and if the criticism is truly damaging to him, there is no way to act, no amount of decorum that will allow you to escape being painted as a horrible, contemptuous figure. Slime, space, ball. I mean, did Barack Obama act with anything other than decorum towards Trump? He got accused of wiretapping. Did Jeff Flake get personal? Jeff Flake never gets personal. Trump still attacked Jeff Flake. You're going to be raked over the coals either way. And I find laughable the second part of that critique, that remarking on the president's visage will distract us from Trump's lack of actions on Russia interference in our election. Well, whose fault would that be, journalist? Comey talks about Russia interference constantly. He talks about it a lot more than he talks about any of this petty stuff that you're underlining. If the media ignores Comey's chilling statements about the administration's indifference to a foreign power trying to screw with our elections, and instead, if the media focuses on salacious comments about the president being orange, whose fault is that? I'll give you a hint. I said it twice in the last sentence. Comey has also been critiqued for taking into account the state of the election at the time that he disclosed the FBI's investigation into Hillary Clinton. How dare he look at the polls in making his choice? I would fault him a lot more if he didn't look at the polls. I've talked about this on my show. Play out the scenarios. Hillary wins 
and you have disclosed the investigation, that's fine. We all live. The people made their choice with full information of what might happen, and no one could say if we only knew. Hillary wins, but he didn't disclose the investigation. That's a very bad outcome. Many people will feel tricked and bamboozled, rightly or wrongly. The scenarios with Trump winning argue essentially the opposite, that there would be no reason to disclose in either of those scenarios, but those scenarios seemed at the time much more remote. In the most likely future, not disclosing did seem to have worse consequences to the nation and the Bureau than did disclosing. What Comey got wrong was the Heisenberg principle, as it is commonly conceived. The experimenter affected the experiment. And perhaps this was a rare instance of James Comey not having enough self-regard because that is the general critique of Comey the man, that he is egotistical. Your critics say this is where your ego got the best of you. This was your original sin. So if it was about ego, why would I step out in front of the organization and get shot a thousand times? And Comey does seem ego-driven. In fact, in the longer interview transcript, he talked to Stephanopoulos for quite a time, they didn't air everything. They talked about ego a lot. But I got to say, ego's not always a bad thing. It can get us into trouble, but it does drive us to protect our reputations. A sense of personal rectitude and responsibility is a fine trait in a public servant. There are lots of ways that ego can go. It could curdle into thinking you could do no wrong, or it could drive a person to say, I stand for something, and people will judge me and my person on the things that I do. I value my reputation, therefore I will act to protect it. And that, acting to bolster his reputation, is what I see as Comey's primary motive. And it's not bad because Comey's self-conception is of a guardian of democracy in America who will always out the people who have done wrong. And in that sense, and in the specific choices that he's made in this book, I totally understand what James Comey is doing. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname is the gist producer. His edits are tight and his rhymes are looser. Rocks the mic with style so the kids yell word. Got more prizes than Bernstein and Woodward. Bernstein and Woodward, Woodward and Bernstein. Did I diss you both? Let me consult this meme. It's Abby and Alana mouthing, yes, queen, next Pulitzers and commentary, the Broad City team. Mary Wilson's the producer who is senior. Few of us have ever got to see her. Spitting rhymes like a dragon is spitting fire. I tell Steve Lichtai she's an excellent hire. He's executive producer of podcasts at Slate. He's a guy from Kansas and he's pretty great. I don't want to jinx or be tempting fate, but slow burn could win a Grammy at this rate. The Gist was the show called Kicking It Live. It's got old school cadence like it's 1985. 1985, a year I've got to mention because the Pulitzer and commentary went to Murray Kempton. Break it down for me, Murray. I couldn't help liking him. Yeah. He's a kind of a lower middle class solidarity. Oomperu de Peru du Peru. And sorry for that and thanks for listening. Tabby and Alana mouthing, yes, queen, the next Pulitzer and commentary, the board, that, fuck, I fucking hate rapping. I'm terrible at it. (laughs) Okay, here we go.